Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast, talking about book 15, chapter, the last chapter, what was it, 20. Oh my golly, um, do you think we will get a conclusion to the Pierre, Natasha, slash Maya, slash Nikolai romances in the epilogue? And as Maya touches upon, why has Natasha forgotten Andreas so soon, and does this diminish their relationship at all? Is Natasha still pretty much childlike, or has she matured? That's a good question. I don't know. Has she? She must have matured somewhat, but I think she is still fairly, I don't know, naive a little bit. She's still childlike in some ways. Warren Kovofi says, Wow, we're on to the epilogues. I have to say, I hope we haven't seen the last of these characters. And for selfish reasons, I hope we can learn more of what happened to them all, especially Nikolai. I feel like for a main character, he hasn't had a proper conclusion. Yeah, definitely. He just disappears, doesn't he? Natasha can't help herself. I feel like her love for Pierre was a lot more natural than her feelings for Andre. I could see the reason for Natasha, oh, sorry, for Maya's annoyance. Their whole relationship took off while they were each grieving Andre. Now it looks like that will end, but I think Maya learns to accept this. Yeah, it is a bit weird. Um too soon kind of thing and I can see why that would kind of rub her the wrong way I would say Natasha has matured for sure says Wonkovoffi she was such a lovely and loving person at her core but she faced a lot of adversary Andre Anatole losing her home the death of Andre and Petra she seemed to improve after each situation but the deaths of Andre and Petra might have been too much I wondered if she could ever recover from it all and it looks as if Pierre and her love for him has shown that she can Kara Kickass says, I would just like to point out that Pride and Prejudice was published in 1813, so it's not like the world didn't know what falling in love in literature could look like. This was not it, Tolstoy. Not a happy customer there. I see that. I can get that. Um, Acoustic Eel says, we're at the beginning of the end. Should we start up the poll for the next book for the Hemingway listeners? Very good point. You know... About a week ago, I thought, oh yeah, I should do that. And then I didn't. <laughs> so I will. I will put the poll back up and we can start voting on what to read next. Now that's for the Hemingway List subreddit. So if you're on the War and Peace subreddit, uh, I'll still link it. But um, I think the next book we'll be reading on a Year of War and Peace subreddit will be War and Peace. Because that's what this subreddit's for. We just start reading that book every January. Over on the Hemingway list, we will be continuing through the Hemingway list. It's a bit confusing. That's okay. Brett Peterson says, for question one, from what I have heard... Oh yeah, by the way, I will put up the poll in the next day or two. For question one, Brett Peterson says, from what I have heard, epilogue one is a bunch of boring philosophy stuff and epilogue two returns to the characters, so there is still hope to get some resolution. I don't remember to be honest i think it might have just been kind of mixed in a little bit like how the other chapters have been you know we just have philosophy philosophy characters philosophy characters characters philosophy philosophy characters just like a mix of chapters like that uh but i actually don't remember you might be right you probably are um okay let's read epilogue one Chapter 1. The first epilogue is called 1813 to 1820.
goes like this. Chapter 1. Seven years had passed. The storm-tossed sea of European history had subsided within its shores and seemed to have become, a cal become calm. But the mysterious forces that move humanity, mysterious because the laws of their motion are unknown to us, continue to operate. Though the surface of the sea of history seemed motionless, the movement of humanity went on as unceasingly as the flow of time. Various groups of people formed and dissolved. The coming formation and dissolution of kingdoms and displacement of peoples was in course of preparation. The sea of history was not driven spasmodically from shore to shore as previously it was seething in its depths. Historic figures were not borne by the waves from one shore to another as before. They now seemed to rotate on one spot. The historical figures at the head of armies who formerly reflected the movement of the masses by ordering wars, campaigns and battles, now reflected the restless movement by political and diplomatic combinations, laws and treaties. The historians call this activity of the historical figures the reaction. In dealing with this period, they sternly condemn the historical personages who, in their opinion, caused what they describe as the reaction. All the well-known people of that period, from Alexander and Napoleon to Madame de Stael, Furtius, Schelling, Fitched, Chateaubriand, and the rest, passed before their stern judgment seat and were acquitted of con or condemned according to whether they conduced to progress or to reaction. According to their accounts, a reaction took place at the time in Russia also, and the chief culprit was Alexander I, the same man who, according to them, was the chief cause of the liberal movement at the commencement of his reign, being the saviour of Russia. There is no one in Russian literature now, from schoolboy essayist to learned historian, who does not throw his little stone at Alexander for things he did wrong at this period of his reign. He ought to have acted in this way and in that way. In this case he did well, and in that case badly. He behaved admirably at the beginning of his reign, and during 1812, but acted badly by giving a constitution to Poland, forming the Holy Alliance and trusting power to Arakchiv favouring Kolatsin and mysticism, and afterwards Shishkov and Photius. He also acted badly by concerning himself with the active army and disbanding the Semenov regiment. It would take a dozen pages to enumerate all the reproaches the historians addressed to him, based on their knowledge of what is good for humanity. What do these reproaches mean? Do, that, do not the very actions for which the historians praise Alexander I, the liberal attempts at the beginning of his reign, his struggle with Napoleon, the firmness he displayed in 1812 and the campaign of 1813, flow from the same sources, the circumstances of his birth, education and life that made his personality what it is, was from which the actions for which they blame him. The Holy Alliance, the restoration of Poland and the reactivity reaction of 1820 and later also flowed. In what does the substance of those reproaches lie? It lies in the fact that an historic character like Alexander I, standing on the highest possible pinnacle of human power, with the blinding light of history focused upon him, a character exposed to those strongest of all influences, the intrigues, flattery and self-deception inseparable from power, a character who at every moment of his life felt a responsibility for all that was happening in Europe, and not a fictitious but a live character who, like every man, had his personal habits, passions and impulses towards goodness, beauty and truth, that this character, though not lacking in virtue, the historians do not accuse him of that, 
had not the same conception of the welfare of humanity 50 years ago as present-day professor who, from his youth upwards, has been occupied with learning, that is, with books and lectures and with taking notes from them. But even if we assume that 50 years ago Alexander I was mistaken in his view of what was good for the people, we must inevitably assume that the historian who judges Alexander will also, after the lapse of some time, turn out to be mistaken in his view of what is good for humanity. This assumption is all the more natural and inevitable because watching the movement of history we see that every year and we we see that every year and with each new writer opinion as to what is good for mankind changes. So that what so that what once seemed good 10 years later seems bad and vice versa. And what is more we find at one and the same time the quite contradictory views as to what is bad and what is good in history. Some people regard giving a constitution to Poland and forming the Holy Alliance as praiseworthy in Alexander, while others regard it as blameworthy. The activity of Alexander or of Napoleon cannot be called useful or harmful, for it is impossible to say for what it was useful or harmful. If that activity displeases somebody, this is only because it does not agree with his limited understanding of what is good whether the preservation of my father's house in Moscow or the glory of the Russian arms or the prosperity of the Petersburg and other universities or the freedom of Poland or the greatness of Russia or the balance of power in Europe or a certain kind of European culture called progress appear to me to be good or bad. I must admit that besides these things, the action of every historic character has other more general purposes inaccessible to me. But let us assume that what is called science can harmonize all contradictions and possesses an, unex an unchanging standard of good and bad by which the to try historic characters and events. Let us say that Alexander could have done everything differently. Let us say that with guidance from those who blame him and who profess to know the ultimate aim of the movement of humanity, he might have arranged matters according to the program his present accusers would have given him of nationality, freedom, equality and progress, these I think cover the ground. Let us assume that this program was possible and had then been formulated and that Alexander had acted on it. What would then have become of the activity of all those who opposed the tendency that then prevailed in the government, an activity that in the opinion of the historians was good and benef beneficent? Their activity would not have existed, there would have been no life, there would have been nothing. If we admit that human life can be ruled by reason, the possibility of life is destroyed. Alright, there we go. Rant one down, more rants to come. Yippee. Well done, getting through the first chapter of the epilogue. I'll catch you tomorrow.